Let's worship together. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 32. Let me read it for us one more time. I want you to realize that though we are picking this up for our sermon text, that this preacher is in mid-stride. His, his voice is elevated. There is power behind it. He has, he has hit a really uh, a strong crescendo point here. So I want us to feel it, and then we're going to dip back into the Old Testament and see what is intrinsically natural to these Hebrew Christians. So when you say the name Gideon, boom, it's like they don't just see a trailer of a movie. That entire movie is played in their mind immediately. They know their Bibles that well. They know their Old Testament. Gideon, Barak, they know all that goes with that. And they understand the parallel, the connection that this pastor is making. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, of Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, and so can you have that same faith. That's the way it's meant to feel. Would you pray with me? We'll look at the text together. Gracious Father, we are so excited to gather together as a body of believers. A body of believers that is not unlike this first century church. Though they were going through a time of drifting and doubt, and we are not there right now, Lord, the danger is on the horizon that we might too have a temptation to push away from the Word of God because the tension of persecution becomes too strong. Help us to do what this preacher calls them to do. And by, defi- by default, in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the timeless message, is calling us to do. To draw near. To hold fast. To, to work out our faith in fear and trembling. To live it out. To, to take the doctrine that we have understood and have it assimilate to our very being. Help us to, by faith, be able to do these things in the power of the Holy Spirit to stand strong, to love deeply, and to live loud. Father, You have not given us, as Paul told Timothy, a spirit of timidity, but one of power and of love and of discipline. Strengthen our resolve. Help us to see things correctly. Help us to realize that we have the great privilege to not just take part in the advancement of your kingdom, but to be the very instrument by which you draw men and women to yourself to become sons and daughters of the King for all eternity. What a great privilege. What an amazing, amazing responsibility. May we realize it today. Fan the flame of our souls that we might respond 
in delightful obedience, that we might imitate the faith that we see here. Certainly people who are fearful, certainly people who are flawed, but people who did things beyond their capability by the power of the Holy Spirit because they trusted in the object of their faith, that the God who called them would be the God who would enable them step by step to fulfill His duties as He seeks to increase His kingdom one soul at a time. Be with us this morning, Lord. Give me the words to say. May I be clear. May I cut it straight. May I not deviate from your holy, inspired, authoritative word. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we've looked at a lot of fellows so far. And recently, especially in this section, we've seen some fearful and flawed men, right? Gideon, Barak. And yet, they were men whose faith, though flawed, moved forward. We saw Gideon, who was both fearful and flawed, and yet he feared less when he depended upon God, what? More. And if I was to write something down to help me remember this pattern that the preacher is taking us through, I might write down the words, Gideon's desperate dependence. He turned his fear into courage when he depended upon God more. So rather than doing what was natural to him, I'm fearful, therefore I'm going to back up and try to be strong in and of myself or protect myself. He did just the opposite. He moved forward and trusted God more. Because when he was weak, that's when, by the power of God, he was strong. But we also had fearful Barak, who hesitated when he was called up for duty. And yet that hesitancy didn't define him. Instead, he, he showed up. And that's what we said. We always focus on the fact that he hesitated. He was scared. But the fact is, is that his faith showed up and God guided his sword every step of the way. You might want to write down the words, Barak's showing up for the fight. Gideon's desperate dependence, Barak, well, simply showing up and letting God do the rest. And that brings us to Samson. <laughs> What's the pastor going to do with Samson to present him, of all people, as a picture of faith? Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but I can see it on your face as you're kind of wondering, was he tempted to just skip over? <laughs> Maybe just mention Samson in the introduction? Oh, we just don't have time to cover everyone, so let's skip on to uh, David and Samuel. How about it? But no, Samson's here, and he's here for a reason. So much so that when this preacher mentions the name Samson, even with all his flaws, the recipients get it. This congregation reading it as though it were being preached, they get it. And they know the kind of faith that the preacher is calling them to. Let's try to figure that out for ourselves. Clearly, the author of Hebrews is not commending him for his sins. We get that, right? 
His sins, while numerous, well, they're for another sermon. I think Daryl may hit on that next week. And they need to be addressed, but here he is commended for his faith. And his faith has something to do with one or more of the descriptions that we see in these verses. By faith, he conquered kingdoms. I would say that that would apply. Performed acts of righteousness. Did Samson shut the mouth of a lion? He sure did. Did he escape the edge of a sword? Absolutely. From weakness was he made strong. He is the very personification of that. And was he made mighty in war? Yes. And so, in some sense, his faith is mirrored in these expressions. But here's my question. In what sense was Samson's faith different than what we've seen? Why highlight Samson, especially with all the problems? Well, there's a reason. Gideon was fearful and flawed. Barak was fearful. Samson is not. Samson, for all his problems, is not a fearful man. And I believe Samson is included here as an example of the kind of fearless faith that this church needs. And I'm saying this church, in talking about the Hebrew church, but I'm also saying this church in talking about Metro Bible Church. Do we need a fearless faith? You bet we do. We need the kind of faith that is desperately dependent. We need the kind of faith that shows up. But we also need a desperately fearless faith. Almost a reckless faith. And that's what we see with Samson. Our timeless truth is, is as follows. Genuine faith is fearless and tenacious. Because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Let me say that again. Genuine faith is fearless and tenacious because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Let me set the stage. Turn with me to Judges chapter 13. Samson's going to get four chapters. That's a lot, certainly more than I could cover in one sermon. But you drop out his shenanigans and you focus on his faithful acts, it becomes doable. All right. Who is the oppressor of God's people at this time? Anyone know? The Philistines. I wrote down the pagan Philistines. You remember these guys from the time of David. Goliath, he was their starting forward, right? He was the big boy. The Philistines were a problem for, for quite a while. And these raiders had an interesting and checkered past. As best we can tell, they are part of a group called the Sea Peoples, that came from um, the Aegean area, most likely from Crete. They're an Indo-European people, and they decided that, you know what, the island was no longer a great place for them. Where do we want to live? Someone says, you know, I hear Egypt's pretty nice. I've seen postcards of the pyramids, the oasis by the Nile. Let's go there. And so they went, and they tried to invade Egypt. But Ramesses III wouldn't have any of it. And he sent them packing in 1175, and they then made their way to the coast of Palestine. Specifically, you might say, the Gaza Strip. Now, if you watch uh, the news, you know the Gaza Strip, well, that's what Hamas owns right now, 
and is firing rockets into Israel. It's that coastlands, which worked well because you can drive chariots on coastal plains. The Philistines were somewhat advanced. They controlled the use of iron. In fact, when they landed there, they made sure that all of the Israelite blacksmiths found other occupations, less hazardous ones, and they controlled the use of iron, thereby putting Israel at a disadvantage. They set up a five-city confederacy, and they were a thorn in the side of Israel. Thoroughly pagan, Indo-European, I may have mentioned, and they were thoroughly pagan. They worshipped uh, the Baals and Dagon. Dagon was their chief god. He was a grain god. He had the hands and face of a man, and I think the tail, I believe, of a fish, and uh, was thoroughly, thoroughly godless. But there's something else interesting here in Genesis. There is no cry for deliverance. Now, this is unusual because we see seven cycles, if you were with us in equipping hour, seven cycles of rebellion, and then God sends them into slavery or bondage. There's a repentance, and then he brings about salvation or rest. But this time there is no cry. And I wrote down bondage, once a noose around their neck, was now worn like a fashionable necktie. They don't complain about it anymore. As, as Brittany would say, my history teacher, it's kind of like the French resistance. It's about 90% French and 10% resistance. They, if you're French, I'm, I'm sorry, don't send me an email. But they just don't seem to really care. The Israelites have this don't rock the boat attitude. And we're going to see this with Samson. Samson, who is their deliverer, is actually an annoyance to them. He's creating too many problems in fighting back. Samson, just settle down. Let's just go with the flow. It's not that bad for us to give up our freedoms. Three words will guide our time today. Three words will give us the ability to try to apply a fearless faith in our lives. Number one, write down the word ability. Ability. Two, audacity. And three, tenacity. Genuine faith is fearless and tenacious because we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Let's look at ability first. Chapter 13, start in verse 2 with me. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, Nazarite comes from a word that means to vow or to consecrate. You may recognize that from other Nazarite vows or other Nazarites that we see in Scripture. And basically, it involved three areas of consecration that were outward, meant to symbolize 
an inward devotion or an inward consecration. So outward symbols, outward pictures that symbolized uh, a man who was devoted, set apart for a particular task by God himself. Number six describes them if you want to look at them later, but the individual was not to drink any sort of alcohol. He was to spend his life eating, we might say, kosher today, not touching any unclean thing. And three, he was to stay away from anything dead. Now, being a Nazarite was usually a temporary vow for a specific amount of time. But there are two people in Scripture for which it is a lifelong consecration. One is Samson. Do you remember the other one? John the Baptist. So Samson was chosen and consecrated to be a Nazarite. Theologically, we would say that he was marked out beforehand. He was predestined for this. God set his affection and choice upon him, not only to be his child, but for a specific task, to advance his kingdom. In this case, to start to pound against the Philistine kingdom, to pave the path for Samuel to finish the job and appoint a king and eventually bring in the divine king, David, who was chosen, who was consecrated for the very purpose of advancing his kingdom. Now that should sound a little familiar to us, shouldn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. So now put yourself in this this little church of Hebrews, of converted Jews. When He says Samson, they know well enough chapters 13 through 16, even though there weren't chapter breaks then yet, and they know that Samson was set apart by God for a particular task. They also know well from Paul's letters that they too were chosen by God, marked out beforehand, where God set His affection upon them and all of us, if you're a believer, for the task of Great Commission work, of advancing His kingdom. So right off the bat, if I'm to look at this, why should I emulate the faith of Samson? Well, first of all, he was chosen. He was commissioned. But more than that, he was capable. Look down at verse 25. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. We see it over and over and over again. We don't see it here because we read English, but Samson is from the Hebrew word shamesh, which means little son. Or, or sunny boy, you might say. And he was to be a bright light in a very dark time in Israel. God didn't need Samson. He could have delivered Israel another way, but he chose to use Samson to do his bidding. This little Hebrew church has started to make this connection. Not only have they been call, chosen and called and commissioned, but they're also capable because they too have the Spirit of the Lord. 
And unlike the old covenant that they want to go back to, the Spirit of the Lord didn't just come upon them for a particular task like it did Samson. But as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, they are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. When you repent of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 again, verse 13. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. As a new covenant believer, we have all that Samson had and more. You ever think about that? You're like, well, I can't bench what he could. <laughs> oh, but you could do so much more. You could do so much more. We are capable. Don't tell me that this Hebrew church has not seen these parallels. And, and maybe if they didn't remember the story, they went, went back and they looked at it. They started to realize, oh, they knew this sort of language, this calling language. We'll look at our second point, and this is the lion's share of our time this morning. Write down the word audacity. Audacity. We're going to rapid fire Samson's acts of fearless faith, most of which are preceded by this capability. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Literally, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And the point is this. Capacity should produce audacity. And that's what I want us to get this morning. Our capacity, the fact that we've been called, uh, chosen, called, commissioned, and we are capable, should produce a different attitude in us an audacity in our faith. You'll, you'll understand what I mean when we go through it. Turn a page over to Genesis, I'm sorry, to Judges chapter 14 and look at verse 5. We're going to look at these, these acts of fearless faith. Verse 5, Then Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came as far as the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came roaring towards him. He's dragging his folks off for a wedding, and apparently he wanders off into some vineyards. Okay, first of all, red flag, he's a Nazarite. What's he doing walking through vineyards? But you're meant to set that aside right now, because we're talking about his fearless faith. I mean, this is like a modern-day Jew taking time to, to tour a sausage factory or something. He shouldn't be doing this. Nevertheless, a lion come towards, comes towards him, and in verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that he tore him as one tears a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Wow. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would run towards an attacking lion. And yet if you're reading this, you're meant to feel a little deja vu, right? What other... Man, after God's own heart, killed a, a lion and a bear. Yeah, see, the author who's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is also making a connection because the book of Judges is written right around the time of Saul, probably by Samuel, and it's meant to make a connection 
There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But then there was a man after God's own heart, right? You're meant to make that connection there. But the interesting point here is that with great confidence, Samson counterattacks a lion, which is clearly much stronger, clearly has the ability to kill him, and yet he does so with the audacity that the Holy Spirit will provide the strength needed to destroy his enemy. Let me say that again. With the audacity, and I want to use the word audacity because we typically think of that in a negative sense. I'm using it in a positive sense. Audacity, I mean the, the sort of confidence that is not within himself, but confidence in the Lord that he is the attacker. He's not curling up. He's not crying. He's not wringing his hands, hoping that God will show up and protect him. He is stepping forward into the fight in desperate dependence. He is showing up for it. He's going a step further than both Gideon and Barak. He's fighting. And he's saying, Lord, I'm trusting you're going to give me the strength to tear this lion apart. And he does. This is not some sort of of name it, claim it, health, wealth, Pentecostalism. No, 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 no. This is desperate dependence. I've been given a task. God will enable me for the task. I'm going to move forward in confidence. We're going to see here again. Side note here before I go on any further. You think Paul, the Apostle Paul, understood this? Paul, who knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards as a Pharisee, Paul, who is writing his swan song to his young Timothy in the faith, listen to what he says. Listen to this audacity. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through the proclamation might be fully accomplished and all the Gentiles might hear that I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. What's the difference? Samson was fighting a physical battle, advancing God's kingdom physically through the adversaries of his chosen. Paul was fighting God's battle spiritually against enemies of those who sought to destroy God's children. We're on this side. We're in the new covenant. But we're looking back at the parallels in the old covenant. So is this first century church. This first century church who was in a corner, fearful, Scared of the persecution to come. Let's look at the second act of fearless faith. I wrote down the words, the clothing line. You'll remember when his 30 groomsmen got the secret to his riddle after threatening to burn his wife and her father. Judges chapter 14, verse 19. Then the, what does it say? Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon, and killed 30 of them, and took their spoil, and gave the changes of clothes to those who told the riddle. And his anger burned, and he went up to his father's house. So he's cheated out of this riddle. He has to provide 30 changes of clothes, a tremendous amount of money. He goes to the neighboring city, 
the Philistine city, Ashkelon. He kills 30 of them. And the picture here is that he shows back up with his groomsmen with 30 changes of clothes and their spoil, meaning and their weapons. And he throws it at their feet audaciously, almost to humiliate them. Here's what we don't see. These were probably their cousins. They recognize that that's Uncle Billy's sword. They recognize that that's Cousin Jeb's outfit there. God used Samson mightily, and he fought ferociously. And he did it in such a way as to, literally, as to mock them. What about the story of the foxes? Remember that one? Judges 15, verse 1, But after a while, in the time of the wheat harvest, Samson visited his wife with a young goat, which is interesting, and said, I will go into my wife in her room. But her father did not let him enter. I mean, can't you just see this? Hey, Dad, uh, here to see my wife. It was normal back then. The wife many times would stay living with her father, and then the new husband would visit. I'm here to see my wife. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you can't do that. I brought a goat. The hopeless romantic that he is, he brought a goat. Should have brought roses. Take note, young men. Not a goat, but roses. And he says, no, you can't come in. He says, what do you mean I, I can't go in? She's my wife. And he says, yeah, not anymore. And he gave away what was not his to give. Watch what happens. In verses 4 and 5, the text describes what he does next. It says he went and caught three hundred foxes. These are probably jackals. It's the same word in Hebrew, and jackals were native to Palestine. Now, I don't know how he did it, but I imagine if God gave Samson Hulk-like strength, it looks like he also gave him super speed to catch these things. He catches them, he puts them in cages, he takes ropes, he ties their tails together, and then ties a torch to it. Lights it, opens these cages, and releases them into the grain fields. Now, you, you may remember this story from Sunday school, but you need to realize what is going on here. It's at the time of the wheat harvest. People are looking out and they're seeing fires pop up here and there, and there's no army. And all you hear is the screams of panicked jackals darting and running this way and that way, and fires popping up here, and horrible screams. You don't know what's going on, and you don't see any men. And in one day, the commodities market slide. The grocery stores have empty shelves. He destroys their economy in one day. And it gets worse. If you keep reading, it says the jackals then make their way to the vineyards. He not only destroys their economy, remember, he's pounding against the Philistine pagan kingdom. And he's advancing gods. He not only destroys their economy, he destroys their happiness. They make their way to the vineyards. Remember, wine was a symbol of, of, of wealth and happiness and joy. And then from there, it makes their way to the olive groves. He destroys their health. What he does here will take years to recover. And he does it with audacity. And you're like, yeah, I, Rod, I don't know. I don't know that I see the parallels. 
Let me read for you the Apostle Paul in writing in 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Yes, we're not fighting physical battles. We're not going out there against, you know, um, pagan idolatry and trying to destroy buildings. No, no. It's a spiritual battle. But it is a spiritual battle that should be fought with an audacious nature. Starts on our knees. If you look here what Paul says, he says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up or raised against the knowledge of God. What is that? That's heresy. That's worldly philosophy. That's worldly culture. That's when the world says, oh, that thing that you Christians call evil is now good, and if you don't accept it, we will cancel you. You see? And what have we done as Christians? We've started the holy huddle, where we gather together, and we lick our wounds, and we say, we're just going to pray. And we should say, no, 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 no. We're going to pray. And then we're going to go out. And we're going to stand firm. We're going to talk about this in a bit, what the application looks like. But I think what I'm trying to talk with us about here is what this first century church needed. They needed a little spiritual backbone. They needed an attitude that was confident in what they believed. And so when the pressure of the world, whether it be worldly philosophy, worldly wisdom, the worldly culture came against them, they weren't going to be nasty about it, but they were going to be confident and they were going to push back. Very, very much like you've heard me mention the last few weeks, very much like the apostles when pressed against by the Sanhedrin. And they say, you tell us, is it better to obey you or God? That's audacity. I can hear Peter saying that. Peter, who used to operate in the flesh, is now operating in the spirit. And the Spirit is bold. The Spirit is not a Mickey Mouse. Look at the next one. Write down the military. Verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who is this? Who did this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he took his wife and gave her to his companion. This is hard to read here. So the Philistines came up and burned her with her father and her father with fire. This is first degree premeditated, immoral, deviant murder. Verse 8, he struck them ruthlessly with a great slaughter. The Hebrew there, struck them ruthlessly, literally is leg on thigh. It's an ancient Hebrew mixed martial arts term. I'm serious. It's a wrestling term. Leg on thigh. It means to pummel them, to take no quarter, to beat them to a pulp, to destroy them, 
to go against overwhelming odds and devastate them. We don't understand what happened here. It only gets a few verses. But whatever it is, he acted strongly as an instrument in God's hands. And then there's the story of the jawbone. We know this one, right? Look at verse 9. Then the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and spread out in Lehi. That means, you know, there was a lot of them there. Verse 11. This is so interesting. 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock at Etam. That's where Samson was hiding out. And said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this thing that you have done to us? (laughs) Don't you know that you're just supposed to be quiet? Go along to get along? Why are you being such a serious Christian? Why don't you just accept them? He says, as they did to me, so I have done to them. You know, Israel can't put together even a a Coast Guard or a National Guard. But boy, they can raise 3,000 anti-war protesters in a moment's notice, can't they? I can see the the signs. Make shalom, not war, right? And they're they're chewing. I mean, it's amazing how passive-aggressive. Why don't they take some of that energy and and point it towards the Philistines? No, 3,000 of them are going to go against Samson. And they say, they're not even ashamed in verse 12. We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, swear to me that you won't kill me. I'll go along with your charade. Sure. Verse 14, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him. What do you suppose they shouted? I think it was blasphemy. I think it was Dagon has given us victory. We're going to see that later on. I think it was expletives against the God of Israel, Yahweh. Verse 14, And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, so that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire. Literally, they melted away, and his bonds were dropped from his hands. Can you imagine the look on the Philistine's face? Verse 15, he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. So he reached out and took it and killed a thousand men with it. I need something to fight with. A stick? No, no. A rock? No, no. Jawbone? Yeah, that's it. Really? But it's a fresh jawbone. Now, you don't see this on the flannel graph, but a fresh jawbone has teeth in it. This guy did a lot of damage very quickly. Speak softly and carry a big jawbone. What kind of warrior is this guy? He's one that is spirit-filled. He's one that is spirit-filled. If I don't understand anything else, if I can't get my head around Samson the Enigma, I get that. But I understand one thing. He's been called, chosen, commissioned, and is capable because the Spirit of God indwells in him. And he's been called to advance God's kingdom. So have we. The great commission was not the great suggestion. It was you go toe to toe and take souls captives for Christ. 
You stand against every lofty speculation. Don't you roll over and play dead when it comes to the truth of God's Word. Don't you apologize for how politically incorrect the Bible is. We're not saying that we need to be nasty, King James-only people protesting with signs. Don't hear me saying that at all. I'm saying we need to be confident, compassionate, commissioned Christians who are soldiers in Christ's army. Well, Samson likes to write songs to commemorate God's victories. This one's kind of interesting. This is for free. With the jawbone of a donkey, verse 16, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. And you're like, Samson doesn't rhyme. You need to stick to just killing men instead of writing songs. But donkey and heaps are the same word in Hebrew. And so it has the effect of something like this. He is audaciously celebrating God's victory because he knows he didn't do it. With the donkey's dentures, I had a great adventure. With the donkey's teeth, I piled them in a heap. That's how it just rings like that. He's excited. Let me ask you a question. Are we excited when God makes advancements with his kingdom? Are we excited when the world's evil is shut down? We should be. We should be. Come on. Do we encourage brothers and sisters in Christ when they take risks? You know, one thing I've been so disappointed in with my pastor friends is that when we see these men in Canada taking a stand and saying, I don't care what the government says, we're going to worship. When the police came into that, uh, that pastor's church, the guy who was Polish, who grew up behind the Iron Curtain, and he said, get out of here. Your law stops at the front door. You get out of God's house. We're worshiping here. And he was angry. I didn't know one pastor that stood up for him. Oh, they're retweeting all day long about what they ate for breakfast or what their favorite song is. But no one retweeted and said, even though I might have done it differently, this brother had the guts to stand up, pray for him. That's what I'm talking about. We've lost fearless faith in a post-Christian society. I think it's because it's fear of culture. Let's look at a couple more. Gates. Write down Gates. Chapter 16, verse 2. Remember the Gates? Verse 2. When it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here. I'll let you... Read later why he was there. He shouldn't have been there. And they surrounded the place. They locked the gates. They were going to assassinate him. They had seen the posters, wanted dead or alive. They knew there was a price on his head. Verse 3, Now Samson lay until midnight. And at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the city gate and the two posts, and pulled them up along with the bars. Look how specific it is. And he put them on his shoulders and carried them up to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. He rips these gates right out of the rock, door, post, and all. Now, let me explain. These were gate houses. In the ancient Near East, just like we studied about Jericho, these gate houses are four to six rooms. 
It's where the mayor and the chief council met. There's offices there. There's cubicles. Uh, These gates are approximately 13 to 14 feet wide. They're made of wood studded with iron. He rips these things up and he walks them 38 miles away to Israelite territory. He walks them to Duncanville. Duncanville. But there's more here than just strength. You see, city gates symbolized economic strength, reputation. This is where all the business was conducted. This is their Capitol Hill, okay? This is like one of our lesser enemies going to the Lincoln Memorial, ripping Lincoln up off his chair, walking him across D.C. and putting him on top of their embassy and like putting a sombrero on his head. It would be the height of embarrassment. you just like, how did we let this happen? How, how, could we, how can we show ourselves tomorrow? There's no gate. When you used to say, we possess the gate of our enemies, that meant we defeated them. We owned them. We owned their gate. No one goes in or out without us saying so. And yet this is the fearless, audacious attitude we're supposed to have. Ephesians chapter 6, Apostle Paul again, he's just a great example of this. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And what is that armor? Word of God. It's prayer. It's the shoes of peace. The belt of righteousness. Let's look at our last one. Tenacity. You know it went bad for Samson. Be sure your sin will find you out. The second part of chapter 16 details his downfall with Delilah. Pick it up in verse 20. She said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Again, this is that commonality. It's not about Samson and it's not about his sin. If I'm to say, what is it about his faith? I have to say he is capable. His his faith has audacity. And now we're going to see It has tenacity. He's in a dark place now. Verse 21, they seized him and gouged out his eyes. And they brought him down to Gaza and they bound him with bronze chains and he was a grinder in the prison. Now this grinder is not like what you see on movies where he's he's pushing a, a big grindstone around. This was meant to be humiliating. It's he's a, he's grinding grain with a little stone. It's woman's work. In the ancient Near East, to humiliate someone completely was to have them make food for their own enemy. And he's blind and he's having to scoop it over and crush it 12 hours a day. Verse 23, now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, Mistake number one. And to rejoice, for they said, 
our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. <laughs> What's the truth? No, Yahweh gave Samson into your hands because he was disobedient. Verse 25, so it happened when they were in high spirits, Hebrew translation, drunk out of their mind, that they said, call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison and he entertained them and they made him stand between the pillars. Now, I don't know what this looked like, but I imagine it was something the effect of like, hey, let's make fun of the blind, skinny guy now and have him do the world's strongest man competition. Let's see if he can't clean and jerk, you know, 50 pounds here. Let's have some of the, the girl dancers pretend like they're boxers and hit him from the right, from the left. Let's throw things at him and see if he can catch it. Let's put heavy weight on him and watch him crash to the ground. Verse 28, in humiliation, Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, now that's interesting, Lord God, that's Adonai Yahweh. This is not the generic term he's used for God in the past. This is Lord God. This is Master. Master God. Please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Now, it's not pretty, but it is repentance. It's not pretty, but it is dependence. Okay? He's at the end of his rope. He's got nothing left to offer. But he wants his life to count for something. And he asks in verse 30, let me die with the Philistines. And what does he do? The reason we know this repentance is real, he assigns himself with the enemy. Isn't that what we do when we repent? We say, God, forgive me for I have acted as your enemy. When we come to Christ for the first time, we are saying, Lord, I was a traitor. You created me for worship, and I chose to serve myself. I chose to worship the creation rather than the Creator. I was your enemy. I earned a paycheck of death, for the wages of sin is death. But God, being rich in His mercy, with the great love of which He loved us, sent His own Son died on the cross, took my place, justice was satisfied, mercy was extended, and you then made us alive by giving us repentance and faith. I am no longer your enemy, but there is now peace, and I am a son of the king. Verse 30, and he bent with all his might so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. And he dies well, living tenaciously for God's glory. His final wish was to die well and give God the glory. Paul, his last words before he would be executed by the blade on the Ostian Way just outside of Rome. For I am being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, 
but also to all who have loved his appearing. I want us to apply this. Right now we can go, amen, this is great. But I want to take just a minute and I want to apply this because I want to make sure that we're cutting it straight. We don't fight the physical battles. But like Samson, we are chosen, called, commissioned, and given the capacity to do his bidding in advancing his kingdom. And with that capacity comes audacity, confidence in God and his word that he will do what he has promised and the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Do we believe that, church? We can go amen there. All right? So you're like, okay, pastor, I get it. But what does that look like? Do I just need to go out and pound some heads? You know? Do I need to go get in the face of my pagan friend? No, please don't. We are not fighting a physical enemy. We're talking about audacity, audacity of attitude, tenacity of, of, of finishing well. But we are in a battle. We are in a war. And as I mentioned, we advance God's kingdom one soul at a time. Watch this. What's our theme verse? First Thess 2.8. We're well pleased to you and part to you not only the word of God, but our very lives, okay? We advance God's kingdom one soul at a time through, watch this, the bold proclamation of God's word and through the relationships of God's people. The relationships of God's people are never apart from the bold proclamation of God's word. But I would venture to say that what is under assault from Satan's kingdom are these two things. Fair to say? Think about it. The truth is under assault. Not just in churches, not just by liberal pastors, not just by the culture, but all across the board. Truth is under assault. How many times have we had conversations with formerly faithful Christian friends of ours only to hear them say, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. And there by the grace of God go I, right? We need to be careful. Satan's forces seek to undermine the truth through its distortion of the truth and division of his people. Think about it. Satan wins, albeit only temporarily, when he is able to take the truth, water it down, twist it up, make it unpopular, or silence it altogether. Okay? Think about that. There's probably other ways, but that's what I've got right now. Or dividing God's people. I can take the most orthodox church, and if I can divide God's people, everyone else looks on and says, well, that ain't working. I don't want any part of that. If Christians can't get along. Why? You know, and it becomes everyone's excuse. And the commonality between the two, as Satan fires his arrows at the distortion of God's word, the silencing of God's word, the watering down of God's word, or the division of his people, those arrows seem to come out of the quiver of culture, okay? In every case, it seems to be Satan's dominion, the prince of the power of the air, is the world. It seems to be from the culture. Christians buckle under the culture. What's happening here with these first century believers? They're buckling under the culture. They've stuck their fingers in their ears because they don't want to hear the truth anymore, and they're starting to divide by not even going to church anymore. Satan's winning. How is he doing it? 
the world, the culture, okay? So, watch this. Our audacity and tenacity will show itself in how we, A, stand for the truth and against the lies of the world. You might want to write that down. Stand for the truth and against the lies of the world. That's number one. Number two, stand for our identity in Christ and against anything else that seeks to divide us, any other identities, okay? Let me say that again. Stand for our identity in Christ and against anything that seeks to divide us. Practically speaking then, understanding that, that this is Satan's MO. This is his attack method. He uses arrows to fire against God's truth and against God's people, and he does it from the quiver of culture. Audacity means that we don't wait until it creeps in here to battle it. Okay? I don't wait until it's part of our small groups or Bible study or equipping hour. No, no, no. I'm battling it out there. Now, what does it mean to battle it out there? Well, that takes discernment. But we stand for truth in our seminaries, even when it's unpopular, in our denominations, even when it's politically incorrect. If you pay taxes, in our public schools, you go fight as long as you can. You're not teaching this atheistic philosophy, this socialism stuff to my kids. And if you're going to teach that stuff, you better balance it out with the truth of God's Word. You're not going to teach evolution unless you teach creation. And I realize that's an uphill battle, but we do it with audacity as long as we can until we no longer can. We also do it in the public square. We're not ashamed of it. You know, my, my most frustrating thing with this, this overreach and, and this taking evil and making it good, and whether it be sexuality or intersectionality, all these things, has been where are the pastors? I love, I appreciate a Dennis Prager. I appreciate a Ben Shapiro. Come on, though. We're the pastors. Get them on the podcasts. Have them talk about no. And what we want to do is from the top down, we want to equip the saints for the work of service to boldly proclaim the truth, realizing that some are going to repent and believe, others are going to reject and attack. But far be it from me to drop the truth of God's word or drop the unity of God's people because I'm unwilling to stand. And that standing may just be saying I'm against it, but it's with boldness saying I'm against it. College students, this is an area I want to see you grow. The next time a professor on day one seeks to mock you, who in here doesn't believe in evolution? I want you to raise your hand. And as he starts to mock you, I want you to kindly, graciously, but firmly with audacity say, yes, I believe in the truth of God's word. I believe God spoke and created. Do we think all this majesty just came about by chance? You feel the level of audacity? It's not being nasty. It's not being rude. It's being confident. And it's moving the ball down the field. You know you're going to be rejected. Take it. Let me, let me sum it this way. No one says it better than Paul. I've used him a lot here. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek.